Greetings, everyone, to Intersections. It is uh, a place where we seek to dissolve boundaries, to bring you know cross currents together from different spheres of life in order for us to understand what it takes for us to approach our full potential individually and collectively. And it is my great pleasure today to form a certain unique and special kind of intersection. And that is the intersection across hundreds of CEOs, people who have you know, risen to the top of the organization, perhaps who are living out what is a dream for so many aspiring professionals. And when you intersect their lives and their paths and their perspectives, what might we get when we look through look at that data from a very synthesized lens. That has been one of the very unique pieces of work in modern times by Adam Bryant, who is an expert on leadership, a former New York Times journalist and a best-selling author. Let me take a couple of minutes to introduce uh, Adam. Adam has had a 30-year career in journalism, including 18 years at the New York Times until very recently. He was the um, founder of the Corner Office Column, where he did these interviews with leaders about their paths. Uh, he has also then gleaned insights and shared them in a few best-selling books, including Quick and Nimble, which won a lot of critical acclaim from other thought leaders in the arena of leadership, like Adam Grant. Another book called The Corner Office, again, that has done really well. I have seen these books. I've read them. I've benefited from them. They're incredibly chock full, chock full of wisdom delivered in a very practical, practical way that you can immediately walk out feeling inspired, but also equipped with tools and insights that we can use starting tomorrow. And there is a new book that he is now putting out called The CEO Test, uh, written in collaboration with Kevin Shera and is meant for release in the next couple of months. Of course, we want to talk to Adam about the lessons and learnings that he has you know, put together in this book as well. Adam has a bachelor's in English from York University, a master's in journalism right from our backyard here at uh, Columbia, the School of Journalism, very storied institution, the School of Journalism at Columbia. He has worked, as you know, at the New York Times and more recently has moved into an organization that does a lot of senior executive mentoring, uh, American company. Uh, he's also a senior advisor um, right here at the Business School at Columbia at the Ruben Mark Initiative on organizational character and leadership. He is actively sharing his voice on LinkedIn, has four popular interview series that have tens of thousands of followers, and in strategy and business has a monthly column as well. He's come you know, out in various forums and media and uh, has, you know, has a very active presence and voice in the leadership space today. Uh, so it is a great delight and joy to have me bring into our midst um, a very treasured colleague, a dear friend, and someone I learned so much from, both through his professional lens, but also his his personal aura, as you will see, Adam Adam Bryant. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Tendra. Thank you. Tell us, Adam, where you are, because you used to be in arm's reach of me until just the other day, but I know you made an adventurous move. Yeah, we uh, we're down in New Orleans now. My uh, grown, my oldest daughter was down here with her boyfriend, and my youngest daughter who was in Nashville. Said, "I'm moving to New Orleans too." So, with both our daughters here, we said, "We, we want to be close to you guys." So, uh, we bought a townhouse down here. We're still getting some art up on the walls behind me, uh, but that's where we are. And and you know, 2020 has been a year of change for all of us in so many ways, and this was one of ours. So, completely unexpected, but it, it's been a lot of fun. 
Well, I'm wishing you all the best. I know the audience as well in this in this major move. And of course, every one of us who's dialing in from New England today is going to be envying you for what must be very beautiful weather. So Adam, there are these defining sort of chapters that sometimes unfold in our life. And it seems to me that your decision to start the corner office column, walk down this path for several years to engage and touch these CEOs and then help bring to the world, you know, and demystify, you know, what it is that they're composed of in their DNA. That must have been one of those, I guess, defining chapters in your life. Yeah, it, it really was. It was a kind of big inflection point. And, um, you know, it, it was really based on a, on a very simple what if question um, that I asked uh, and really just comes down to what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their company or their strategy and instead interviewed them as you know leaders first and only and lessons they've learned over the course of their career, early influences, how they think about culture, teams, how they hire, career advice to new college grads. Part of the, the context for that was that um, I was a business reporter at the Times for about 10 years and covered a lot of different companies and industries interviewed a lot of CEOs. And during those interviews, I was asking them kind of the traditional questions about strategy and industry dynamics and how they were going to win in that environment. And it was just the more time I spent with them, the more I found myself just wanting to set aside those questions and say, you know, how do you do what you do and, and trying to understand them as human beings. So just that simple what if question and that led to 525 interviews. Um, you know, I've just sort of learned so much, not only just in the patterns that have emerged about how to lead, but just, you know, a tremendous amount of, of wisdom and insight. And, and I know CEOs often get a bad rap, you know, they're overpaid and some of them kind of blow up in headlines and, you know, do things they shouldn't. But most of them are, you know, very wise. They've got you know, the CEO position, you've got a tremendous feedback loop of experience and just a vantage point to see, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And uh, just there's a lot of wisdom to share. So I, I feel like I've really benefited from that. And, and now with these LinkedIn series I'm doing, I'm continuing those interviews with CEOs and board directors and CHROs. One of the things I really like about the story that you're sharing is, um, this notion that, you know, one can be part of really large and storied institutions. You know, you've been associated with the New York Times, you know, with Columbia, now here at Merrick. But one can still be entrepreneurial. One can still be shaping and redefining the boundaries and, you know, putting in place a new direction and really sort of like introspecting on our values and our passions and finding a way to kind of like map that, you know, into, into the resources that that institution can offer us as well. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of how you feel about what that must have been for you? I do. And in many ways, you know, I think this is true in journalism, but also for entrepreneurs, you know, at the New York Times, we would sometimes talk about the art of the good, dumb question. Right. And a lot of great stories in journalism start with somebody going to like, you know, what could maybe sound like a dumb question, but it's actually a great question. That's why we call it the good, dumb question. And, you know, in many ways, that's what led to the start of Corner Office. Just that simple, what if? What if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them about their companies? Because that's not the way CEOs traditionally have been interviewed. I mean, for the most part, CEOs are interviewed almost like football coaches, right? Like, how are you going to win on Sunday? And, and nobody ever asked football coaches how they lead. And I think CEOs have been kind of treated the same way. And I think ultimately, it's a lot of what entrepreneurs do, you know, their experience life as a consumer and they just see kind of a, a break in or a seam or something and go like, what if we did this differently? So I do think the, 
the art of the good dumb question helps you in a lot of different aspects of life. Yeah, perfect. So I, I want to right here glean a lesson for for myself and for our audience, which is uh, let's not just dichotomize, you know, the world guys right into those that are more sort of going down, you know, established career paths and those that are like striking it for themselves as entrepreneurs. But there's this entrepreneurial kind of spirit that rests within each of us. And sometimes you play it out in more of the institutional world and can do really beautiful things with it by just having that craft of independent creative thinking and stepping back. That's, that's beautiful. I don't, I don't know if you've had a chance to notice it's a, you know, feed going on to the, to the right of us, right? The uh, chat that is active uh, amongst our participants. And for the most part right now, people are just greeting each other and saying, just to clarify, you know, your focus in these interviews has been primarily, is it right, with like American CEOs or is it been, is it been broader than that? Mostly, but I, I really tried to embrace diversity in every sense of the word when I started the series, you know, race, gender, nationality, size of company, industry, for-profit, not-for-profit. You know, I've interviewed famous chefs and musicians and Broadway production managers and really tried to get a kind of 360 view of leadership. I mean, Kind of like the, the goal that's been driving, I think, my interest in leadership is twofold. One is that I, I really want to kind of democratize leadership because, you know, when I was a reporter at the Times and writing a lot about CEOs, the leadership field at the time was very much, you know, if you wanted to understand what CEOs think, you had to go to an intermediary, whether it was consultants or academics, you know, there were CEO whisperers. And, and I just thought, well, no, I, I, I can talk to them myself and hear their stories. And I really want to get away from the approach of, you know, just interviewing like the, the Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 CEOs um, and, and really look for, for leadership lessons in, you know, in, in all places. And, and another part of my focus early on was, you know, I, inter I was going to interview a lot of women and people of color. But um, at the time, I decided I'm not going to ask them any race or gender specific questions. That's changed now in light of the events of this year. I've got an interview series going on LinkedIn with black executives where we are having the conversation about race. But a decade ago, I, I, I made that decision because I, I found too often when women, people of color were interviewed um, and their leadership positions, the, the interview would always start off to me on a wrong note. Like, you know, so, you know, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a CEO, how do you do it all? And I think a lot of the people who were being interviewed got tired of that conversation. So another what if that I set for myself was just, what if I interviewed everybody the same way as leaders first and only and not ask those questions? And and so there's a couple of guiding my print couple of guiding principles early on. I really like that because, um, you know, what you just also revealed to us there is that when we are taking on a certain you know path to really reflect a little bit on what our guiding principles are going to be, what are going to be those bedrocks through which we will approach, you know, whatever it is that we're doing in this case, this very unique enterprise of going and engaging with the CEOs with a much more of a opportunity to draw out a fresher voice, you know, from them than, you know, than what they've been used to in the past. When you connect the work that you've done there with, in more recent years, an increasing amount of teaching that you're doing as well, you know, both through some of the blogs and books that you're writing, as well as I know, you know, my students have had, you know, a great, you know, great, great pleasure and having you in the classroom as well. And, and, and there are other classrooms at Columbia who've benefited as well. What have you seen has been surprising to these students of leadership, you know, young and middle-aged, uh, you know, uh, folks who are aspiring to still rise to the fullest, you know, potential in their own careers and who are hungry to glean the secrets of success? What are some preconceptions that they may have had about, about leadership 
which when you glean, you know, what you've seen from these CEOs, you end up um, reshaping for them. I think leadership is tremendously hard. I mean, if it was easier, we'd, we'd see more good leaders. And honestly, I mean, the more I study it, the more I think it's frankly one of the hardest things to do on the planet um, is to lead effectively. And, you know, as a result of that, I think a lot of people try to simplify leadership, you know, provide kind of like, you know, here are the three things you need to focus on. Here's the one thing that you need to focus on. But you see headlines on the internet about um, this kind of stuff all the time. And it's it's very tempting to click on them because it's like, this is a really hard problem. Oh, it looks like somebody has simplified it. But I think at the end of the day, you sort of have to acknowledge the complexity of leadership. And it's always based to me based on three variables, which are ever shifting, right? In any leadership situation, there's three variables. One is you as the leader and your personality and skills. There's the collective personality of the people you're leading individually and as a group. And then there's the context in which you're leading. Is it a big company, small company? Is it a turnaround situation? Is it hyper growth? And with those three things, like those three sides of a triangle, if you will, I mean, you get an infinite number of variables. And, and I think a lot that's overwhelming to a lot of people. And so to me, one of the most useful frameworks, I think it's important to separate discussions of, of leadership into two categories. There, there's things that you do as a leader, you know, tactically, strategically. And then I think the second category is, is how you should be as a leader. And I think those are two very different discussions. But on the topic of how to be as a leader, one of the things that has been very helpful for the people we work with in my consulting role now is to sort of understand leadership as a series of paradoxes or contradictions or balancing acts that you know, this idea of like, yes, you need to be compassionate, but you also have to hold people accountable. There are times you need to be demanding. You have to have confidence as a leader, otherwise people won't follow you, but you also have to be humble. And you can sort of click down almost every aspect of leadership and set them up as those pairs, these kind of opposing forces. Then you have to understand the balance point in the middle of them and then know like, based on the context, which way to flex. And I think, you know, in the conversations that I've had with, with aspiring leaders, that that's been a useful framework for them because we really need to get away from the, you know, three bullet points or here's a Venn diagram of three circles on a whiteboard that somehow magically explains leadership because it, it doesn't work that way. There, there is a big difference between simplifying and oversimplifying. And I think there's too much oversimplification of leadership right now. Well, that's, uh, that's an incredibly powerful model for us to maybe unpack a little bit more, uh, Adam, because we have been fed with so much of this kind of a, you know, idea that there is, in fact, a certain path that you and I and we can all take. And here are the seven steps or here are the three you know, best practices or here is a checklist of the 15 things we should do. And I'm coming to a conclusion at this stage of my own career and research and teaching similar to what you have uh, just established for us. So I'm resonating with this idea a lot that, in fact, um, you know, we have to dispense with those kinds of, you know, checklists and toolkits and formulas as predefined kind of, you know, enablers of success. And we have to somehow still find a way to systematically explore and manifest leadership, but in a way that allows us to hold that paradox, right? Like you're saying, across almost any dimension of behavior, there are going to be situations where you'll need to flex, you know, one side or the other side of that dimension, right? Is that what I'm hearing from you? Exactly, exactly. And a lot of that, you know, frankly, is based on gut. I mean, you, you know, there's some moments where you need to pound the table and there's, 
other moments where you need to say, what does everybody think? And I've, I've seen some leaders really thrive in those moments to the point where they say, like, how did you know how to do that? Like, it's just an instinct thing, right? When do you push? When do you hold back? When you're running a meeting, when do you, you know, at some point you need input from everybody, but at some point you have to land a decision well. And there's, you know, as much as it'd be great to have sort of a playbook for that, it is based on gut and, and gut is, you know, ultimately developed through experience, right? And so I, I think part of growing as a leader and being an effective leader is being incredibly self-aware and very observant about looking for patterns. You know, I took this approach in this situation. It didn't work as well as I expected. Why not? And then just sort of constantly kind of wringing every moment of experience for, for wisdom and insight. And, you know, look, my, my firm does executive mentoring at the C-suite level. I, I think, it, you know, we are very helpful to the people we work with. But I also think we all have to be our own mentors. And the way you do that is just by spending a lot of time reflecting and, and processing the experiences you've had. And, you know, the image comes to mind is sort of like a wet, a wet towel that you sort of you keep wringing for every drop of like, I just went through this experience. What can I learn from it? What worked well? Why? Why not? You know, what can I try differently next time? To me, that's part of the art of it. I, I love the idea of, um, on the one hand, being very much driven by what's in front of you in the moment and what feels good from the gut. Uh, but I'm also hearing you say that that thing that you're calling gut is basically an accumulation and a synthesis of all the experiences you had, as long as you are processing them consciously and reflecting on them and learning from them right? And continuing to sort of like advance your craft so that you don't get too stuck in old grooves as the world is changing, but you're constantly evolving. So that's, that's beautiful. So that I see as one of these maybe underlying common denominators, you know, in, in great leadership, right? Like the, the notion of being able to continuously advance your craft, but be reflective on it and learn from it and be your own mentor, Adam, as you're saying. To that end, I'd be drawn to, you know, the, you know, having you kind of weigh in on this one hunger that all of us have, right? Which is like, all right, Adam, you're asking me to play this paradox and to be really open in the moment, doing just what is right and to operate from that gut. But like, what are some, you know, eternal like principles or practices here that cut across these leaders that may be helpful to me? to play that game in the most successful way. Uh, you know, you and I have had some conversations about, you know, where, you know, in, in my work, we come from a place where, you know, we, we focus on the inner mastery aspect of this, you know, to say that the outer conditions are changing, but the inner game can be quite steady. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious, when you look across these leaders, do, do you see anything like that? Do you see any kind of like steady aspects, consistent aspects, if not on the outside, at least on the inside? Certainly. And, you know, it, it makes me think of something that I've noticed because I've done, you know, before this year where everything's virtual, but um, all those 525 interviews I did uh, for Corner Office, I always did in person. I didn't do any of them over the phone. And I really came to appreciate that, you know, you can look in somebody's eyes and just tell from that, whether they are comfortable in their own skin uh, and do they know themselves? Do they know their strengths and weaknesses? There, there's this kind of calm and, and almost peace that I see in their eyes. And, you know, you ask yourself, like, well, where does that come from? And what has struck me about all the leaders that not all of them, but certainly most of them is that they have kind of a framework in their head for not only their approach to leadership, but every aspect of leadership, you know, I ask them like, what's your approach to culture? And they say, well, these are the three things that I find are the biggest drivers. 
And it's not like there's a right answer. In fact, most people's answers are different, but they've created this model where all the pieces kind of fit together. Like these are what I think is important about leading individuals, leading groups, about culture, executive teams, you ask, and they've got frameworks. But then I think that framework ties into a level of, of self-knowledge and self-awareness about what their own values are, early influences when they were a child. I mean, you know, I always start, I always like to start my, my interviews, like tell me about when you were a kid and tell me about your parents and how did they influence your leadership style. And the CEOs, the leaders I've interviewed that seem most calm, like everything ties in, you know, I grew up in this kind of family and these were the values that were really were made explicitly important to us and those are important to be now and that's how this is how that plays out in the workplace and what I look for in people so you know all of that adds up to these kind of x factor qualities we talk a lot about which is like authenticity right and trustworthiness and you know I do think there is this quality of like some people are more comfortable in their own skin than others and that comes from self awareness so in those moments where the leader is on the stage at an all hands meeting and people looking at them, I think their antenna are like, is this somebody I can, I respect? Do I trust them? Do they seem to know who they are? Um, and, you know, there too is a paradox because being a CEO, being a leader is an overwhelming job, right? Like you've got a hundred inputs coming at you from, you know, every direction at every moment. And two, in the middle of that, be sort of calm and centered. I think the way you do that is by having these frameworks in your head of how things work. And that example of like paradoxes that I mentioned before, that's another framework because at no point are they saying like, I don't know what to do in this situation. I think it's more they go quickly to, all right, this is a situation where I need to either be compassionate or demanding. So they have this kind of branching network and that's why they can appear calm in that situation. Yeah, I love the idea of frameworks. Um, again, a um, testament to the importance of doing a lot of inner tilling of your soil, right? Like around creating clarity for yourself, espousing those principles, testing them out in the harsh light of day, honing them and getting to kind of like a sense of completeness from within that I can take any situation and process and understand it, you know, through the through the right lens. I've heard you also talk about the simplicity, about how you've been struck by how these uh Individuals are often able to, you know, cut through the clutter, the noise, the complexity and put things in, in very simple ways, you know, for themselves and for the world to understand. Can you can you weigh in a little bit on that? Sure. And it really is this skill that um, I, I came through as a, as a key theme and trait of successful leaders, which is this ability to simplify complexity, because, you know, almost any size of company, there's, you know, a, a lot of different avenues can you can take. But I do believe it's the leader's job to be able to, you know, stand up at an all hands meeting and, and just answer the kind of questions that, you know, little kids ask in the back seat, which is like, where are we going and how are we going to get there? And I have seen too many strategy decks from leadership teams that, you know, they've got 10 bullet points and there'll be a colored tiered pyramid with corkscrew arrows and all that. And it's just too complicated. We know from the world of neuroscience and just kind of everyday living that most people can't remember more than three or four things. And so there's, there is this sweet spot of simplifying complexity, but not oversimplifying it. And, you know, I think a great example is somebody like Bob Iger, who took over at Disney. He was, you know, he was an insider, but he was promoting himself as a change agent, which is a pretty tricky move to, to pull off. But when he was campaigning for the job with the board, 
you know, and I read the story in, in his in his book. He somebody gave him advice. It's like you can't. You, you got to come up with three things, Bob. And so from what he basically said, and we're going to focus on three things, which is great content. We're going to embrace technology and platforms. We're going to be agnostic about it, but we're going to embrace technology. And we're going to expand globally into other countries and other markets. And literally since that day before he got fired, he has repeated those three things. And to the point where, you know, it's the second sentence of his bio on the corporate website. I mean, the joke inside Disney, if you ask him anything like, you know, how is your vacation, Bob? He will say great content. You know, he just sort of understands the, the importance of repetition. And it's interesting how this idea has played out, especially in our work with leadership teams, because we also we often push people to get to this idea of simplicity. And it's easy to look at somebody, you know, somebody like Bob Iger and what he did, this model that he constructed. It's easy to look at that and say, well, of course, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Like, but the thing is, it's not. It's only obvious in hindsight because those three pillars have, you know, they have played out in his tenure at, at Disney and that's how the company has grown and expanded. So it's worked. So again, you, there is this sweet spot if you can look at these things and say, well, of course, but if it works, if it helps everybody understand what their role is in the organization and what they should be doing, that's a beautiful thing when it works. And you, know, you see some examples like that, like McDonald's from the earliest days said, you know, quality, service, you know, cleanliness and value. And you go, well, of course, what else would it be? But that was their strategy and it led to this global expansion. So yeah, I'm hearing um, a good lesson here for us to draw and any kind of perhaps directing of some kind of collective efforts, simplifying the message. I'm also having you talk about needing to repeat the message and be consistent with it. Right. And uh, and that's the discipline. You know, that's the discipline. And that's beautiful. We're living in very transformative times. I mean, we all know that. And some of it is the technological kind of like transformation that is happening. Some of it is uh, social unrest and transformation. Some of it is geopolitics. Uh, of course, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And, you know, so from a variety of different sort of directions, you know, the world is being shaken up. And I think we're all concluding that while we're hungering for a return to normalcy, that it's going to have to be some kind of a new normal. You know, the world is just not going to be likely to reset to where it was in the past and kind of like that's how history is played out anyway so yeah. in that context one thing i wonder is have you found any qualities that are likely to predict whether a certain leader is going to be more successful in this new normal world and others perhaps less successful some who have been able to kind of get the ship so far but the storm that is you know now you know in our um, amongst us is going to be a hard one because they just weren't prepared or they just didn't have the right temperament or something to embrace the shifts in the wind and the new direction that the world is taking how do you how do you parse that out from these conversations and you know discoveries of these ceos and their and their gifts and and, and wisdom first of all i just want to agree with you just you know what 2020 has been and and will mean long term i mean i, I sometimes like to go through the exercise of you know 50 years from now if somebody writes a book about the history of leadership in corporate America. I think 2020 is gonna probably deserve three chapters on its own. And I do think one of the inflection points is, I, I think 2020 marked the end of command and control leadership. And just this idea, people have been talking about the ability uh, to embrace ambiguity for a long time, but now that that has become real. 
you know, I, I think it's important to step back and look at the context too. Before 2020, the last crisis that people in, in companies faced was the financial crisis of 2008. So a lot of leaders grew up in a world that was pretty stable and pretty predictable. And you could do long-term planning and take the spreadsheets out for, you know, many columns predicting a future. But we are now living in this world and, and I don't think it's gonna change. I mean, whether it's, you know, yes, we're getting vaccines, but I think everybody's waking up to the fact that like disruption, just the sheer level of disruption is gonna be a constant. And so what separates people in that environment? And, you know, what's been interesting to hear, Hitendra, from a lot of my interviews with CEOs this year is there's a very consistent theme. So pre-crisis, you ask CEOs and they will say, you know, I had this view of my leadership team. Maybe there's 10 people on it. I would have ranked them one to 10 in this order pre-crisis. But in the crisis, almost everybody is surprised by how that plays out, that some people really step up in those moments and find their voice and their leadership voice in those moments of crisis. And other people you would expect it to be rock stars actually kind of fade into the background. And so what is that quality? It is being comfort comfortable in the in the unknowing right and this idea of embracing ambiguity and i think for from a leadership point of view that just comes comes down to that simple moment if you're you know if you're leading a meeting just to be able to say you know i don't have the answers what do we all think anybody any leader who these days thinks that they have the answers or can predict the future I think they're going to lose their credibility pretty quickly. So, you know, I heard this great expression years ago from a CEO. It says that, you know, the smartest person in the room is the room. Just this idea of collectively, we will figure this out together. And that's not comfortable for everybody. You've got to be, you know, as I said, you've got to be pretty like grounded and at peace with yourself to be able to lead those discussions and go in saying like, I don't have the answer. What do we all think? And this, you know, brings us into the conversation about diversity, which, you know, another way to think about it, I kind of frame it as almost like a physics challenge as much as anything else. Because the point of diversity is like to see a problem from as many different angles as you can. Because if you just hire people who are like you and see the same problem from the same specific angle, you're not going to get that kind of surprising breakthrough uh, insight. So to me, that's ultimately what it's about. Like just how comfortable are you in that ambiguity? Another way to think about it, you know, it used to be if you were in business, when the world was more stable, as an employee, you're kind of handed the playbook, right? This is how you do your job. But we are now in the world where everybody has to write the playbook for their job, whether you're a CEO or on the C-suite team. And it ties back to something we talked about earlier, just being kind of an entrepreneurial thinker. Like, what does that mean? How does that play out? And the way it plays out is like, you have to kind of create your job rather than waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. Yeah, that's a great point. It links back to that notion of entrepreneurship as being even more critical today, individually and collectively. As a leader is seeking to bring that message to their team, effective modes of propagation of their message in today's time, you know, there's only so much time you have as a leader. There's only so many people that you can physically touch. Have you come across kind of more effective versus less effective ways for leaders to be able to have engagement and impact, you know, with their people? I think it's... Um... You know, there, there are so many different avenues for communication right now. And I think leaders may have an assumption that like, I'm really visible, I'm in touch. 
with people a lot, um, but generally there's a gap between how much they think they are and, and how they're perceived. And in this context, perception is reality. I really like the expression, there's no such thing as over communication. Um, one CEO I interviewed said, communication is leadership. And I think it's just important to you know focus on what are the core messages and not be afraid to repeat them. Another great expression I heard was this, this idea of like never leave a void of communication because people will think something's wrong. And I've seen this play out in my own life and uh, in context that when there is silence, people start making up narratives and they start making up, you know, challenges or scenarios. And what's interesting is the smarter the person, usually the more creative, the negative scenario they come up with. So, you know, as a leader, I, I've heard many leaders say that part of their learning curve about communication is, you know, early on, they say, why do I need to repeat this? I just, you know, I said at the last all hands meeting. But the answer is you need to repeat it because in effect, you are battling the void, right? Because if you leave the void of communication, people will fill it with stuff and rumors and conjectures. And I've heard so many stories that kind of bring that theme to life. So, but I think now too, with now that we're Zoom and virtual, there's just so many modes of communication and just being out there, reminding people of what the strategy is, you know, the core values of the company, how those are brought to life. I, I think that just keeps people focused on the work because that's the goal, right? You want people to be focusing on how to help customers and clients and products and services rather than being focused internally around politics and what's really going on. And I think a big way to do that is just is to be reminding people and, and and understand the higher you go in a leadership position, the more your job is communication, even though you're repeating what you said. So let's keep building on that theme of communication. One of the aspects of the transformative times that we're living in, uh, which you know just as much as all of us, is the level of like tension and fault lines and uh, you know fierce disagreement that there is happening in societies, you know, at some level worldwide. Certainly, certainly here in the United States, sometimes it is, you know, between nations and sometimes it is within a country like America right now is, is quite divided, you know, painfully so and in so many ways. And therefore, I imagine that, you know, one of the one of the roles and responsibilities of a leader is to find a way to unify, find a way to bring people together for common cause. And I was curious, you know, as I look around some of these struggles that we've been facing as a society and observe some of these leaders from the outside, but also as I take on that mantle, you know, at my own limited small level myself, you know, in the Columbia classroom or with executives, you know, we're seeing some of these fault lines, you know, show up a little bit and surface there as well. Have you found any devices that uh, some leaders have used very effectively as a way to cast the widest net they can to bring more and more of the people into a certain kind of like unified direction and a yeah. unified feeling of like we're in this together, even though the starting point was a lot of divisions and you know, fierce emotional differences. It's such a rich and timely issue, Hitendra. And I think, again, just for, for context, if we kind of, you know, go back a few years and, you know, even a couple of decades ago, I mean, companies had kind of a singular purpose, right? It's the whole shareholder versus stakeholder debate. And companies used to exist to return profits to shareholders. Um, but especially what we've seen in 2020, I think, I think in many ways, companies have become like governments and a lot of 
societal's society's broader problems have kind of rolled past the door of government agencies and rolled up to the front door of companies to address you know there's one ceo it might be it might be such an adele but somebody had talked about like the outside is now in right all of society's challenges are now inside companies and i've had a number of conversations because i've been curious myself like how do you lead when that's happening you know if you imagine that all hands meeting and people are putting up their hands and in some ways ceos have to be like politicians and be you know ready to answer a question on about literally anything like what's our policy on this what's our policy on that you know how do you feel about trump versus biden and so then the question becomes well how is it as a as an organization and how as a leader do you deal with that because you know somebody pointed out if you try and take on every single one of those issues you're you're going to you know polarize your entire workforce and so I think the best strategy that I've, I've heard from a number of leaders is this idea that you have to be more proactive and essentially say, look, there's a lot going on in our society and there's a lot of important questions in the world, but we are going to proactively say, take a stance on these two or three issues, you know, beyond returning profits and, and growth as a company. And, and that's, that's who we are. And it ties back into our story as an organization to, so to kind of tell that story and then to, in effect, have sort of a tough conversation and say, like, this is who we are. This is what's important to us. This is what we're doing about it. And if that's, you know, if that works for you, then we'd love to have you as part of our company if you believe in what we're doing in the work. But if you don't believe in it, then, you know, there's plenty of other places you can find a job. And as an example, I mean, Levi Strauss, you know, the immigration policy was big for them from the start. And they've also been quite vocal on gun control. Part of this stemmed from, you know, these, these sort of mass shootings, but they had an incident where a customer's in one of their stores and his gun went off. Um, and fortunately, an employee wasn't hit, but that's when the company said, you know what, enough, right? Like one of our employees could be killed here. And so if you've got a gun, you're not bringing it in our store. And they became more vocal about it. And they're just, so there's this idea of like proactively taking a stance and being able to say why this is important to us, but then being able to say, look, we may not be for everybody. I mean, Satya Nadella said, look, we are going to work with the Defense Department. And if you're not comfortable with that, we understand. That's fine. It's your right. But then, then find another company. So to me, that's like the, the sort of strategy and approach that's emerging, that you cannot be all things to all people because then you're going to stand for nothing, right? And this idea like pick a few things, societal issues, and then make them real rather than just talking about them. Because I think everybody's a little skeptical now of the, the sort of empty talk, right? They want to see action. Uh, there's some, I think, great lessons to learn uh, from that. I'm connecting that a little bit to some of the you know studies I've done of you know, great reformers and leaders and o- over, over centuries. And one of the things that struck me was how they stayed very focused you know, on, on their cause, on their purpose. Even while there might be a swirl of other things going on in society around them, you know, I was thinking of Gandhi, for example, you know, wanting to kind of really focus on India's independence and the amelioration of like the underprivileged classes of India and, and you know, not really focusing that much on the Second World War, you know, that was happening, you know, around him or Mother Teresa looking at the least, you know, you know, privileged and the context of just acute poverty. So focusing a lot on, on, on that kind of poverty, not like paying a lot of attention, for example, to mental health. Uh, you know, that was just not her purpose. And with the limited time and resources she had, that is what her organization was going to do. And that is what she was not going to do. Steve Jobs, uh, you know, doing all the brilliant work he did, but really not spending a lot of time thinking about philanthropy and what to do with his billions. 
you know, leaving that for future generations to kind of work on. So I'm seeing, I mean, is, is that making sense? Like that, that, that there's yeah. almost like a consistency between that idea and what you are sharing that you define kind of like your like areas of focus and just make peace with the fact that the kind of people who will be part of this movement or this, you know, organization are, are those that are drawn to those as their priorities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi's said, look, if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. And another way to think about that, I mean, it was a Harvard business professor who said, strategy is what you don't do, right? It's yeah. about yeah. making hard decisions. You can't do everything and you can't be everything to everybody. Yeah. Perfect. Adam, we've got a few minutes left and I, I'd love to just turn the conversation more into personal direction, right? And so um, you are someone I see, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, in many ways, an exemplar of uh, what, you know, what a good career and what a good life could could be about. You have, uh, you know, contributed in very important and meaningful ways and advancing, you know, our understanding of such an important discipline of leadership. You have uh, stayed, you know, kind of very committed and passionate about about this path you've been on for 20, 30 years now. You are at a place where you have tremendous followership, you know, for your ideas and thoughts and are continuing to do very, very important work. You have adapted to the present moment, bringing in, as you said, some of these more minority voices as well and opening up to, you know, what is their experience like in the workplace and in leadership and how to offer that up in a thoughtful way to the world. Where is all this coming from and where is all this headed next? That's uh, the two lines of inquiry I want to open up. So we want to kind of, you know, invite you, if you can, to give us a little bit of glimpse into, you know, the soul of Adam, right? And so what were your, when you look back, most formative experiences and influences that um, have made you who you are today? And uh, let's talk about that first. And then I want to talk to you about your future. So I think going back to, you know, when I was a kid, a couple of big influences. One is I, uh, you know, I, I played a lot of sports and I, I you know, played probably much every sport there was. And I just love the experience of team. And, you know, when people are pulling together, um, it's amazing what you can do. And, you know, then I got into work life and I saw that that, you know, a lot of that sort of sensibility doesn't exist. And a lot of the times it's, you know, the manager and the leader's fault. So, you know, also when I was younger and playing a lot of sports, I was from a, a very young age, I was weirdly interested in different coaching styles. You know, when I watched football, I was like studying, like, why is this football coach like yelling on the sidelines and the other person's just sort of standing there very quietly and what effect does that have? Um, so, you know, teams have always been important to me and, and, I think another important thing, you know, if you gave me a magic wand that could accomplish three things, I'd probably get rid of inequality, racism and bad bosses, because, you know, I think bad boss, we all know there's a lot of bad bosses and the surveys show that. But I don't I sometimes think people don't fully appreciate the toll that they have on people's lives, the stress they create. You know, we've seen bad leaders destroy good companies. We've seen great leaders build up companies. And, and so that's another one of the sort of key pillars for me. In terms of my wiring, I mean, my, my parents were a big influencer, um, influence for me. My father especially was a kind of world-class listener. He was an editor in journalism for many years, and I, as I was as well. But, you know, I watched him with people, and he had this magic uh, magical ability to kind of bring out the best in people. He was so genuinely interested in them, and he saw the best in people. And I watch them get them talking, and and I've I've really tried to put that in practice for myself. I mean, I, I am interested in people. I think everybody has lessons and wisdom and insights to share, um, 
and I've I've learned some you know the art of interviewing over the years. But you know I I just I I love hearing great stories and insights and and how do things how to lead more effectively and then kind of take the the next step and say okay because because by now I've interviewed more than six hundred leaders kind of in depth about how they lead and their approach. And so then what I try and do is just, you know, frankly, spot the patterns and then bring those to life in, in books and articles. Um, but ultimately, what's what's driving me is that if I can make a, you know, a good boss even better or maybe turn a, a struggling boss into a better boss, like that has a ripple effect. Because as leaders, we all have these very big wakes behind us, right, of, of people. And if you can, you know, if you're a good leader, you can really improve the lives and, and lift the trajectory of, of, you know, the arc of people's careers and their lives. And, and so that's kind of what fires me up if, you know, thinking that I can make a, a, a small impact in some way. Very, very interesting to hear. So it's almost like from a very early age, as you were observing those coaches and others that you developed this intrigue about this craft of, uh, you know, how certain people are in a certain role or position that, you know, gets them to hold even more responsibility in some ways for the ultimate success of, uh, uh, you know, of a collective and the uh, happiness and fulfillment of that. Yeah. I mean, and therefore, you know, that kind of carved your path forward. And then it's beautiful to hear about your father and what a, you know, what an inspiring influence he's been on you. You talked about what, you know, how great he was at interviewing and, you know, empathizing, connecting with people. You know, I, I can tell you from conversations I've had with you, Adam, like what a, consummate listener you are and I know that that's translated also into a, a winning class that you've come and taught several times here at Columbia as well around the art and science of listening but uh, it's a tremendous um, discipline and gift you know that you bring in, in your work uh, it's, it's it's such a joy to spend conversational time with you because one always comes out of it feeling not just that one has learned and discovered beautiful things through you but one has learned and discovered beautiful things about oneself through the line of questioning that you've engaged with us on so Thank you. I always enjoy our conversations. I appreciate this very much. So let's take a final, you know, kind of, you know, line of inquiry, which is to look look forward for you. You know, I'm curious at this stage of your career and life with all that you, you know, are doing, have done, and with the ferment and change that is happening in the world. You know, I, I'm guessing that you, just as much as you know, me or others here, you know, are are seeking some amount of a reaffirmation, but perhaps even some amount of, I don't know, like reinvention you know, to, to embrace the fresh energies and possibilities of today's time as we think about our next chapter. So when you look ahead the next, you know, five, 10 years, I mean, what is it that most intrigues and excites you about the things you you, you want to invest your heart and, you know, time into? You know, I, to me, I'm, I'm always looking for areas where, you know, enlightening conversations, illuminating conversations can be had where areas that need to be explored. And, you know, this year I've, I started this interview series on LinkedIn called Leading in the B-Suite. Um, it's after all the horrific racial events of this year. Um, and I started with Rhonda Morris, who's the chief human resource officer at Chevron, who I became friends with a year ago. And, and we are interviewing very prominent black leaders and having the conversation about race in corporate America, which is a difficult conversation and what can and should be done to increase representation of black leaders in the C-suite because you know, companies can make all these pledges and commitments, but until we start seeing more representation of people of color in the C-suite, it's going to look like empty talk. So that's an example for me of that's an area where, you know, as, as a white male, I'm the first to acknowledge what I don't know. But I also feel like I'm a bit of a proxy. And if we can have, if I can help bring these conversations to life and share people's stories and insights, 
that will lead to a greater understanding. And I think race in this country is an area that has this kind of like infinite room for improvement. And just this idea of like diversity, like just there's something about our wiring as human beings that we seem to be uncomfortable with people who don't look like us. And, but we are all human beings. And I think the more that I can help create connection points through sharing people's stories, you know, I'll feel like I'm making a contribution. That's beautiful. I am in- intrigued, you know, to end on perhaps a question then for you on, on that very topic, which is so central to our time today. This, you know, this quest for creating a more equal world, a more just world, really taking an on- honest look at some of our triumphs, but also our failures of the past and, and, and ironing out some of those very, very visible wrinkles that still exist. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen uh, come up at times in, uh, that create tension points in organizations is around, on the one hand, seeking to really commit to a certain, you know, like, like, you know, kind of like quantified outcome, you know, for, for the organization around the representation of minorities. And at the same time, you know, not, not in any way let anyone believe that someone has been given favored treatment, you know, that, that someone's in a certain role, you know, because certain, you know, certain conditions were not, you know, equally distributed across everyone. Have you, have you seen people, you know, grapple with that tension in these kind of diversity and other leadership positions and, uh, are you seeing any kind of light emerge as to like a, a way to kind of like both keep keep that sort of like, you know, ship in balance and have everybody feel, you know, that we're all equally investing in everything and at the same time really remedy some of these historic wrongs? Yeah, and I think it, it requires some courage to to have a tough conversation because, you know, as I think about what, what you're saying and the way that can play out, if the company says we're going to be committed to promoting more black executives and building that pipeline, that some white employee is going to say, well, that's not fair. And when I've talked to black leaders about that situation, they said, look, you know, we're pretty upfront about like we're doing this and there's been 400 years of unfairness and, you know, the numbers show that things have been unfair. We're going to take steps to correct it. And there's a little bit of, you know, tough love there, just, you know, tough talk, if you will, like, this is a clear problem that has not been dealt with. And we're going to take the steps to deal with it. I mean, it goes back a bit to what I was saying before of like, you've got to have the courage as a leader to, to, to take a kind of proactive stance on stuff and say, this is the way we're going to work here. And if you really don't like it, well, you have the right to work somewhere else. Yeah, it's great. I'm really liking the way you're connecting, you know, the threads so much between past parts of our conversation and, and, and the present moment. It seems to me like there is an underlying matrix out there for us to tap into, which more consistently allows us to deliver informed, wise leadership. As we close this discussion out, Adam, is there any one final insight that I can turn to you to offer our audience, you know, as a, as a final gift from you for, for the year before we wrap up? Any one final? Because one of the things I've learned from you is just like, it's amazing what an encyclopedic collection of uh, insights, tools, stories, quotes you have. So let's just offer one final one final gift from you to our audience. Well, just on the topic of listening, I mean, I, you know, I've, I sometimes say this to your students when you invite me in to talk about listening, is it, you know, just like we're having a, a podcast here, I mean, just go through your life like you were in charge of a podcast. And, and when you meet people, just ask them questions. And, you know, if you're generally interested, people will open up and I can promise you, you'll learn things. And that's kind of the way I approach life. I just assume I can learn a tremendous amount from everybody I talk to. And uh, and to me, it's it's a really efficient way to learn things. I mean, you know, sometimes you got to plow through a thousand page book to find the nuggets. But when you're talking to somebody, you can get to the nuggets pretty quickly. That is such an incredibly valuable insight you've given us because you're saying, look, it's less about the accoutrements from the outside about ask these 20 questions or do it this way. It's about the intention from the inside. 
And if your intention is that there's going to be something really interesting for me to discover, I just have to ask the right questions. Yeah. Naturally, so with your own personality, the right questions will flow. Yeah. I think that's what I'm getting from you. That is a wonderful insight. Thank you so much, Adam. Um, it has been a joy to have you with us. All the best as you continue to you know, settle your roots down in, in uh, New Orleans for now, much as we are missing you in Manhattan and looking forward to having you make regular visitations and spend time here as well. All the best for the new year ahead. Um, thanks a lot joining us today. Thanks so much, Atendra. Our pleasure.